Dr. Melanie Thompson is originally a native of Melbourne who left to find true love and biomedical science in the UK from 1999 to 2011, in which time she worked at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Great Ormond Street, yeah. I was going to call it Great Ormond Saint Hospital. No, no, three. Make any sense. Three. Cancer Research UK before returning to her first passion of infectious diseases during her master's and PhD at the University of York. After a short postdoc working on gut bugs, she's brought her love of poo to the Deakin Medical School. I love poo. <laughs> and set up her research lab. More recently, she's become infamous for becoming one of the first Aussie scientists to use crowdfunding to get funds for a clinical trial involving mighty medical maggots. Yeah. You can ask me about that later at the bar if you wish to. <laughs> Melanie Johnson. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you very much for that introduction. Um, Firstly tonight, I would like to actually acknowledge the elders, past and present, of the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight, the Wurundjeri people. And I would also like to acknowledge the elders, past and present, of the Wathorong people, who are the traditional owners of the land in which I have my lab in Geelong. And the next thing I'd ask, like to ask, is there any rich people in the audience? Maybe some lawyers or accountants or maybe a drug dealer? Anyone? Anyone? Because I really need a $50 note. Okay? Anyone? Pablo, you look like a man with a $50 note. Ah, thank you. Bit of audience participation. Right, okay. So the person I wish to speak to, to speak about tonight is the man on the back of the $50 note, David Unapion, an Indigenous reverend and scientist. Now, he is my hero, and it's a bit weird because people think, wow, why have you got some, like, God-fearing, God-bothering man of the cloth as your hero when you're a scientist? And I know that the Skeptic Society of the Great Ocean Road will be clutching their pearls and fainting dead away uh, to hear me say that. But actually, he really is one of my science heroes. And his story is really, really interesting, and that's what I've come to talk to you about today. So... The Reverend Unapion was born in 1872. So cast your mind back, back in the day before Federation, way back in sort of frontier Australian times. He was born at the Maclay Mission in South Australia and he was the son of an evangelical preacher called James Unapion and his mother's name was Numbuldia. She says not pronouncing it very well. Um, and they were of the... Njurindri people, and I apologise for not being able to pronounce that properly for the people from that nation. But his father was trained as a missionary, and uh, he was trained by the Scottish Presbyterian Church by James Reid, the Free Church of Scotland, and he was the first Australian missionary that was sent out into the hinterland to try and convert the heathens into the sort of good Christian uh, morality, as it were. And so he's there spreading the word, um, for Christianity. But while he was there, he was out collecting the stories and the cultural history of the Indigenous people in those parts of Australia, which is up near the Murray, in the, the Coorong region of Australia. David was born at the mission, and he was the fourth of nine children. And so uh, he then started school when he was seven, as you do, and he was very precocious as a youth, uh, he was uh, described, he was, he was basically seen to be very intelligent 
and a former secretary of the Aboriginal Friends Association in South Australia in 1887 said of him, I only wish the majority of white boys were as bright, intelligent and well-instructed and well-mannered as this little fellow that I, ha I am now taking charge of. In a sort of patronising white, you know, posh kind of way. So David left school at 13. He went to work as a servant for a, a esquire called C.B. Young of Adelaide. And this person that took him in as a servant really encouraged his interest in literature, philosophy, science and music. And he became a polymath at that time. So he was studying things like classical Greek and classical Latin, as well as the philosophy and the music as well, and languages. And he was being apprenticed to a bootmaker after he was a servant to learn the craft of bootmaking. And then he was also uh, appointed the missionary organist when he came back to the mission. He did work, tried to find work in Adelaide, but he found that actually his colour of his skin meant that he couldn't actually find someone that would allow them to make boots for them. So he found that actually he couldn't get a job as a bootmaker per se, he could only get a job in the storeroom sort of fetching boots for the white bootmakers. Now, he was very curious as a child and he continued that curiosity as an adult. And he was a man of the cloth, as I say. He was very interested in comparative religions or epistemology, as my friends in the Institute of Curie Education at Deakin would tell me. And he did really believe in the equivalence of the traditions of Aboriginal Australia and Christianity. And so he really was sort of breaching the divide between those two um, sort of faith and belief systems. He spent a lot of time travelling as a missionary and he came across a lot of intelligent people in that time. And the time in which he was doing this was a time when eugenics and the intelligent, the racial basis of intelligence was actually a thing. So Thomas Huxley and all of those kind of people in the UK, I think he met some of these sort of grandiose people when they travelled to Australia and had conversations with them and they were like, oh wow, there's like a black person that's got a mind, oh wow. You know, they really were shocked to find that in, um, you know, in Australia in this sort of regional backwater when they'd come from the, U the UK. But he was a very um, passionate person. He was very passionate about Aboriginal culture and Aboriginal rights. He spent a lot of time doing what we're doing today, which is communicating about the Aboriginal culture and Aboriginal rights. And he was in great demand as a public speaker. But often it was very difficult for him because he was refused accommodation and refreshment. So if he tried to walk into a place like this, he may have been refused service at the bar. So even though he was the person booked to speak. So it's an interesting sort of, uh, you know, dichotomy between what we see today and what he was experiencing back then. He was the first Aboriginal writer to publish in English. And he wrote numerous articles for newspapers, again, based on traditional stories and arguing for the rights of Aboriginal Australians. He published a set of stories in 1930 called Myths and Legends of Australian Aboriginals. And in fact, his intellectual property was stolen at that point by some anthropologist called William Ramsey Smith. Nice. 
thanks that for that, mate, you asshole. Uh, but uh, basically, it's now been republished in his name because it was his work and it had been stolen by this anthropologist and published on his behalf. But the most exciting thing about David Unapion is his science, and that's why I really am interested in him, because he just didn't stop. He was one of those traditional polymath scientists that wanted to know why, and he kept going and kept inventing, even after knockbacks and attempting to get uh, provisional patents that were then uh, basically stolen by other people to make money out of. And, he, and if you look closely at the $50 note, if you ever get a chance to see a $50 note, depending on your uh, you know, socioeconomic status, uh, there is actually a picture of the uh, shears that he had uh, invented, which was where they turned the, the, sort, of, uh, the, curvicle, the, the sort of circular motion of shears into a linear uh, plane, and that is still happening in the technology of shears today. And so that's, he invented that when he was 37, but again, it was a provisional patent. He couldn't get someone to support him with that. He couldn't get that uh, sort of investment in him because, again, he was an Aboriginal Australian and they thought, well, there's no point supporting him in his you know, engineering endeavours because, you know, what's the point? We could just nick it and just use it anyway. And that's basically what happened. And he was only acknowledged in a, a newspaper article in 1910 for having been the person who invented those shears that we are still using today. He also was an expert on ballistics. He also had uh, other patents, provisional patents in for a centrifugal motor, a multi-radial wheel, so he foresaw Bathurst in his uh, early days, so he was absolutely a visionary in his time. He also was very interested in mechanical propulsion and he has often been described as the Australian Leonardo da Vinci for his work, looking at the way the boomerangs work and comparing that to helicopters. So, in fact, he may have preempted the helicopter by being able to basically explain, in a sort of physics uh, scenario, how boomerangs fly and how that could be converted to then flight for humans. So, he married and had a child. He didn't really retire. He was still preaching and he was still basically tinkering around his shed, as you do as a scientist. Uh, and those of you who've got anything with LCDs, that was invented by a man in Hull, tinkering around his shed. Okay, so everything that you've got with a smart screen was invented by some crazy guy in the middle of nowhere Yorkshire, tinkering in his shed. Uh, but that's by the by. But he also, David Unapion, he also was very passionate for his work with Aboriginal Australians. He petitioned the South Australian government to replace their chief protector of Aborigines, who was a white man, with a uh, responsible board that had more of a uh, uh, sort of you know, communication strategy with the actual Aboriginal Australians so that they could have more of a say in that instead of, you know, it's my way or the highway with the chief protector of Aboriginals as it had previously been. He basically returned to his birthplace as he retired and was getting older. He returned to the mission where he'd grown up. He spent, as I said, spent a lot of time tinkering his shed and he was actually trying to um, get the sort of the golden, uh, the golden idea of 
perpetual motion, which is a bit like alchemy uh, as an idea. And it's interesting that he, he thought that he could make a perpetual motion machine. He was in this sort of uh, idea mindset and he never gave it up, even though when he was 87, he was still trying to make a perpetual motion machine. And I really admire that in him because as a scientist, you know, you, you think, oh yeah, I've got all these crazy ideas, but then you think, oh, I'll just get rid of them, you know, and they're not going to be worth anything. But he stuck with it and that's what really inspires me. So he was very confounding of stereotypes. He was described as urbane and fastidious in his manner and speech. And he was held up as a bit of a paragon by the white establishment as a, an idea of how Aboriginals could advance if only they'd been educated, which is a bit uh, patronising, just a tad. And in this time, as I said, it was in this background of eugenics and racial um, basis of intelligence. So it really was quite, um, at the time, very, very interesting time to live for him. But... He lived quite a long time. He didn't die until he was 94. And for someone like myself who spends time on the Close the Gap campaign, that's actually quite a good innings for an Indigenous Australian to be able to live to 94. Because I don't know if there's many people today that could say that they could get that far in some of the Aboriginal communities because of the health gap between white Australians and, and them. But the reason that I want to talk about him tonight was that he inspires me because he was confounding the stereotypes. And I like to confound stereotypes myself. And he also inspires me to keep searching for funding. And if anybody here in the audience is a scientist and has attempted to find funding lately, um, it can be quite challenging. And it's interesting because obviously he, was, he had good ideas. He'd, he'd protected them with provisional patents, but he couldn't convert them to be actually able to deliver them to market and able to get his... Um, ideas protected with proper patents. And that was a shame. And it, it's definitely a salutary lesson for scientists of all ilks that they really need to protect the intellectual property and protect what they're doing by making sure they patent them properly. So I, that's a lesson I take from him. But mostly the lesson that I take from him is that he gives me perspective. Now, I spend a lot of time on Twitter having a white wine about being a woman in science and how hard it is being a woman in science. But frankly, compared to what he went through in that background of being an Aboriginal Australian and being in that time where eugenics and the, the philosophies of, of the day were basically saying that black people were more stupid than white people, and he still kept going. He still was inventing things. He still was producing work. He still was trying to get patents, even though no one wanted to give him investment for that. And I really take that from him. I really take that, just get out there and do it. If you really believe in what you're doing, nothing will stop you. And I think that uh, David Unapion really did give me that story. So thank you for listening.